0: Joining me today is Anita Cohen and Andrew Kunkel, both partners in our Chicago office, and today we'll talk with Anita and Andrew about their backgrounds and path to Bain, the different leadership positions they hold and have held along the way, and the important work they do within Bain's private equity ring fence with learning, development, and growth of our people. Welcome, Anita and Andrew. Great to have you both here.
1: Thanks, Keith. Very excited to be here. Hey, Keith.
0: So we've known each other for a long while, really long in some cases, but I wanted to fill listeners in on your backgrounds as we always do. And Anita, maybe we'll start with you. You grew up in New York and attended Binghamton for undergrad and went to work at a law firm for several years. What was the experience like? What were you looking to do when you decided to go to Binghamton and and pursue something in law?
2: Yeah, great question, Keith. So yes, I am a New Yorker at heart, been in Chicago now for for over 10 years, and I will still fight to the death over who has uh, the better pizza. So hopefully I'm not upsetting people too much by saying that. But my New York uh, roots run deep. I grew up in New York. I went to SUNY Binghamton for undergrad. I got a degree in English literature and economics and graduated college thinking I, I wanted to go to law school. That was something that I had had my sights on. I thought it would be a really great fit for, for me professionally. And so after undergrad, I moved back to the city and then I started working in a white shoe corporate law firm just to kind of get my feet wet and make sure that that was the right decision for me. Really glad I actually had that experience. It turned out that that was not the right fit for me, but but glad that I got the professional experience to be able to, to make that decision. While it wasn't the right fit for me, though, I, I did end up staying at the firm for for several years. I was lucky enough to move into a management team role at the firm, focused on on people operations. And it was at that point where I started to get a little bit of a spark around professional services and what it meant to be in client service. And I think that that probably lit some of that initial enthusiasm for consulting.
0: So you at some point ruled out law school as a multi-year investment and financial investment that you wanted to make, but then you (laughs) decided to go to business school. How did you decide to go back and, and choose a campus to go to?
2: By the time I went back for my MBA, I had several years of work experience under my belt and I was much more well-equipped to make big financial decisions about my future. I went to Kellogg for my for my MBA, which was one of the best decisions ever. It was a, a wonderful, wonderful program, although I'm sure Andrew's gonna debate me on whether Michigan versus Kellogg wins out here. But went to Kellogg and really went with the lens of of being a career switcher. My job in the in the corporate law firm was great, but that was the only job I had since undergrad. And so I had a pretty singular view professionally. And so I wanted to go to Kellogg really to broaden my experience to see what else was out there and really think about how I might want to chart a a different path going forward. I went in with a pretty strong hypothesis around consulting. I still very much was interested in learning the general manager toolkit. I wanted to get exposure to a lot of different industries. I knew I really liked working in fast-paced team environments. So that was my hypothesis going in and and it it proved out over, over my two years at Kellogg.
0: Now, one of the things I don't think I realized—did you go back to the full-time program, or did, were you working while you were in the MBA program?
2: I was working. Yeah, I did. The, I did the part-time program at Kellogg. Which, in retrospect, now I ask myself how how I did that. A lot. A lot of credit to uh, my brethren who were who are doing this part time. It's it's definitely a balance. But yeah, I did a part time. I, I really loved my job. I was doing well professionally, and so it was a trade off that I was I was willing to make.
0: Did you find recruiting difficult while? doing work full time, doing school full time and somehow finding extra time to pursue a completely different career.
2: It was a bit of a balancing act. Um, I had a few more balls in the air maybe than than someone who was going full time, but you know, on, honestly Bain in particular made it made it really easy. I met a lot of great Bainies very early in the process. They they made the networking very easy. They you know, I, I met one person who introduced me to someone else who introduced me to someone else. And so very quickly, I was able to get a flavor of of what Bain was all about and really get excited about the firm. So logistically, sure, there were there were a few challenges, but ultimately, you know, recruiting is a really fun process. You have an opportunity to, to kind of change the trajectory of your professional life. You get to meet a whole bunch of, of really fun people and go to cool events. So net net, it was uh, it was definitely a positive.
0: And I, I know the school team from Northwestern and from Kellogg runs very deep throughout the Bain Network globally, so I can only imagine what the one-person-to-one-person-to-one-person one one networking was like.
2: It can get a little overwhelming sometimes. Sometimes there's too many people that you want to talk to in a day.
0: Exactly. Andrew, let's, let's talk a little bit about your background. I, I've known you since you started as an AC, although I didn't realize that, like me, you stayed uh, straight through to your master's program. Was that your goal coming into undergrad, and how did you make that decision?
1: In high school, I knew I liked math and problem solving, which kind of led me quickly into engineering as a natural place to go. And so I went to Michigan to become an engineer and ended up in mechanical engineering. And then along that journey, as I started to work in the field during the summers, I was finding it wasn't moving quite as fast and nimbly as I was hoping as a career. And really in parallel to my senior year, kind of started to think through next steps. I realized I needed a little bit of extra time to try and figure out what was next. And so I started lining up a master's degree, Michigan does this great thing where like, I you to double count credits, and so it kind of became this natural thing that I should probably go do to buy myself time to figure out where I wanted to take my life. And in the background of that, Bain had reached out to me through an organization I was a part of, and I kind of bit on the marketing and went to one presentation and was immediately hooked on it and kind of went all in as a senior in parallel to pursuing the master's degree and ended up uh, being fortunate enough to get an offer that I then had to defer which is a really uncomfortable conversation to have with Dalton, who I was terrified was going to rescind my offer the minute I said those words out loud.
0: loud. So wait a second. So you said you were technical, you did technical internships while you were in school. I did the same. Did you ever think about switching majors or taking a harder pivot sometime throughout? I know for me personally, I enjoyed all of my summers for like eight of the 10 weeks. But by towards, you know, by the end of the summer, I was like, all right, this was fun. Let's get back to school, which was a good signal for me that maybe engineering wasn't the right career for me for multiple years after school. How, how did you think about that part of the journey?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I could tell you the exact slide in the presentation for Bain that like changed the paradigm, right? Like the thing I was struggling with was the job I was doing at any given moment felt okay and interesting. And I could see other people doing engineering jobs that I also felt like was interesting, but I was having a real struggle plotting what my path looks like and, and kind of where does A go to B? And there's all these rotational development programs. And so it's like, okay, I'm going to move here and then here and then, then what? And I was really struggling with that lack of clarity. And there's a slide in the main presentation that says, okay, you're an AC and then you become an SAC and then you become a C1 and then you become a C2 and then you become a manager. And I kind of looked at that and I was like, that is the clarity I need. I just need <laughs> a line that says you keep doing X and we'll keep moving you to the next stage. And like, in my young mind, that crystallized everything I needed. Now I've come to learn right. the thousand other reasons I should have wanted this job. But right. at that juncture, if I'm being honest, it was purely as simple as that's clarity that I am looking for in terms of a career path and an acceleration. And then the rest kind of filled in from, from there.
0: Hey, let me ask you, um, one of the things we talk about a lot, Andrew, is building your own Bain. And we say, you know, if you talk to 10 Bane people, you'll find 10 different paths through Bain. It sounds like you actually started building your own Bane before you got to Bain. How did that conversation go? Because obviously it worked out, but I do think that advocating for yourself for a lot of people can be really intimidating, especially during the recruiting process because you don't want to sound like you're entitled to something, but you also have other personal goals that should fit with the career. Looking back, how did that experience go and how did you work up the courage to sort of even ask if you could defer?
1: Yeah, I was very fortunate in that there was someone the year ahead of me who had just deferred their offer and it was the first person Chicago had had to do that from my understanding, in a fairly long time. But somebody had blazed that trail, which gave me at least the notion that I could even ask the question. I don't think I would have even known I could ask the question, frankly. And I asked the question and I and I was getting the what felt like the party line of like, we'd like you to start as soon as possible. But and I was trying to figure out was that them kind of telling me, right, you know, really, you're supposed to start. And I certainly my parents were advocates for Hey, don't mess up a good thing and and (laughs) postpone. But at the same time, I had the chance to get a master's degree in engineering that the school paid for because I taught for the university. I had no idea what I was getting into in management consulting as an engineer by trade who'd never worked in the field. So I was panicking a little bit like, what's my fallback plan here if I find out this is just organ rejection? And the idea of having a master's and going through that was it was very worthwhile. And so it just kind of came to a point where I had to sit down with the person that was the head of recruiting at the time and say, just honest dialogue, like am I shooting myself in the foot with you guys if I say yes, I actually want to defer, or are you honestly telling me it's totally fine? And he said, I'm honestly telling you it's totally fine. Either way, it's all good. And so I said, okay, I accept and I defer. (laughs) And it kind of, it was that, it was that simple, but I needed to have the very transparent conversation and feel comfortable that it wasn't going to set me back in the eyes of, of folks here. And in hindsight, now that I lead AC Recruiting, I tell you, it obviously does not. And I coach people through this all the time. But obviously when you're junior, that, There was a lot of fear there as I got to that stage of the process.
0: Yeah, a year for a master's feels like a really long time when you're in your early 20s. And I look back on my fifth year as a master's, and it was great. It was a great year. And it's not like I feel like I'm a year behind further down the line. Now, you also went back to Michigan again. Like I said, the the Northwestern Kellogg crew rolls deep. So does the Michigan crew. When did you decide to go back to business school and and get a third degree from Michigan? And, And was that a difficult decision or something you knew you wanted to do on the front end?
1: Yeah. So for me, because of that entire story as an engineer by training, I never really had much business going through that. I kind of knew at some point an MBA was going to be necessary for me on a longer term career trajectory. That was very clear. It was more a question of when is it through Bain? Do I want to work in industry first? Kind of how do I want to line the dominoes up? But but I knew that was going to be part of it. And as I got closer to the end of my AC career, Yeah, I started looking at what I'd want to do and it became clear to me that there was either kind of one path to take to go into PE, in part because I had friends and colleagues that were going into it and it sounded exciting. Mm -hmm. And so I started kind of going down some of those paths and exploring and in parallel exploring business school and was kind of going through the, okay, we'll see how I want to play this as these evolve. And what became very clear to me was just where I was at in life, where my interests were, what I wanted to get out of the next couple of years that business school and coming back to Bain was the right answer for me. The closer I got to P, the more I realized actually what I like about it is the stuff that Bain does in it, not what the actual job is on the other side in terms of what I like most. And so between that and the fact that what I was really dying to do was learn to manage people and teams, like that was the skill I knew that I wanted. And Bain is uniquely set up to really help teach you that in that kind of post-MBA role as you grow to become a team manager. That was what I was looking for, and so the combination of all of that was why I got a business school in Bain was the right next step for me.
0: Anita, I want to come back to you for a second because you did Kellogg part-time, recruited with Bain, and got the offer. So, mission accomplished, successfully switched careers. What was it like when you started? Your first case in, you sort of jump in both feet, new industry. I'm guessing we didn't drop you into working for a law firm as a consultant. So how did you make that adjustment? What was that like?
2: I want to share a few anecdotes. I I share these often in recruiting and people don't believe me, but I swear these stories are are all true. So first of all, in the recruiting process, I mean for all of us, there's there's ups and downs. And I had my share of of setbacks during recruiting. It's you know, it's not for the faint-hearted, but to your point, I was I was lucky enough to receive the Bain offer and once I got it, it was a a no brainer decision. I remember getting getting the phone call on a on a Friday night, and I I said the party line of, "Well, let me. I'm going to take a few days to think about it." And I think at eight a.m. on Monday morning, <laughs> I accepted. So it was a pretty quick decision for me. And I remember riding high the whole summer. You know, I had this offer at Bain. I was so excited. And this, this is the part that people don't believe, but 100% true. It must have been the night before, or two nights before my my actual start date. And I had this arresting moment where I said, oh my gosh, they made a mistake. I probably got the offer by accident. They must have mixed me up with someone else. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do when I show up on Monday morning? And I had this This panic attack where I realized I am not cut out for this job. How could they have hired me? And then I remember walking in on that Monday morning. And I remember, you know, when you first start at Bain, there's you start with a a class of folks. Um, And I remember walking into the room where where my class was and and meeting everybody for orientation. I remember scanning the room thinking everybody is so accomplished and everybody is so impressive. And I clearly was the one who got in by accident. And so I tell people that it's it's 100 percent true. Um, But what I quickly realized is, you know, Bain has just so much so much support infrastructure in place. And so for someone like me who is a career switcher who came in with a bit of insecurity around, hey, well, I never worked in a a finance-heavy role or a marketing-focused role. How am I going to keep up? There was just so much in place to make sure that I could be as successful as my peers who had maybe a more traditional path coming to Bain. You know, whether that was the formal orientation, whether that was the more informal mentorship, Bain truly does have an apprenticeship culture, and that was really, really key to my success. Now, coming in, having only been in one industry and being a career switcher, you know, what I optimized for my staffing in my early days was really to get a taste of a lot of different things. I wanted to go through my first year or two and come out the other end and say, hey, I have a distinct list of things that really give me a lot of energy and a list of things that, you know, if I had my druthers, maybe I wouldn't choose to do again. And so, you know, if I reflect back on my first two years as a consultant, I did everything from you know pricing strategy work for a healthcare company to merger integration work for a retail company to IT strategy work for an internal project at Bain so I really I really jumped around a lot and and I think through that experience you know I was able to build my broader business toolkit through a series of reps but I was also able to start you know making that that list of things that I was starting to get excited about at Bain
0: Cool and then you ended up and I know now, and we'll get into a little bit later, in the private equity group, when did you first get exposure to PEG and when did you decide, hey, I think this is something I'd actually really like to focus on?
2: Mm-hmm. So you're going to notice a common theme here. I did not want to do PEG, actually, <laughs> fun fact. So I did my first rotation in our private equity group when I was a second-year consultant. And I was, I was drawn to it because one of my, my close friends from my start class was just finishing up a rotation herself. And back then, you know, because Andrew and I kind of started in the stone ages of, of Bain, back then our private equity group was was a lot smaller. And so, you know, as one person was leaving, they kind of pulled in, pulled in the next person. And so she was finishing up her rotation and she said to me, I really think you should do this. I think it's going to be really great. She's like you're going to be a little a little nervous going in but it's by far the best learning that you're going to have at Bain. The the projects are short, you're going to get a lot of reps with the toolkit. Again, you're going to get exposure to a lot of different industries. You're going to see large companies, small companies, and it really is a strategy toolkit, right? It's about answering questions around is this market attractive? What is the risk of disruption? What do customers say about the specific company? A lot of the questions that, you know, I remembered so well from, from MBA. And so I was nervous, but I, I took the plunge and I, I, it's a rotation-based program. I actually ended up extending my rotation in the private equity group just because I, I liked it so much. And it, it really, it, it delivered on everything that I was looking for in terms of the, the learning reps.
0: And it sounds like you are already familiar with the imposter syndrome of joining peg and feeling completely clueless and behind everyone else. So you were already down that learning curve, too. Huh?
2: You know, I, I sure was. They, they, they you know, they have a phrase around the insecure overachiever. I, I fit that archetype as, as many babies do.
0: There are a lot of us here in that bucket. Career-wise, Andrew, why don't we talk through your Bain journey a little bit, and then I'll come back to Anita in a sec. Starting as an AC, we know you went back to Michigan. We talked about that. What else did you do along the way that that left an impression on you? I know a lot of us have taken advantage of different opportunities. I think you did a transfer. You've taken on other leadership roles. Talk a little bit about some of the things you did outside of the core you know, AC, SAC, business school path.
1: Yep. Case wise, like Anita, I need to be very generalist across the board, I can honestly put up our mix of capabilities and industries and basically say I've touched every one of the quadrants along the way, be it pretty convincingly. As a C2, let's call it CTL, so kind of right post business school, I had always thought about doing a transfer and trying to live internationally and just never put the pieces together in life before business school to make that happen. And so my then fiance, now wife, and I decided to kind of put in and say, hey, we want to go live overseas for a little while while well, we still can before we start having a family and everything else. We ended up in Amsterdam, which was just awesome. And so we we spent a bunch of time in Amsterdam. It's actually when I got back into PEG. So I had done it as an AC many, many years ago and then got to Amsterdam and the partner charged the ring fence there and said, hey, we'd really love to carve out this kind of mini manager role, managing our second PEG team as we're trying to grow our local ring fence. Would you be interested? And so that's kind of what I took on as I as I went over there and it got me got me going on it as a side note, doing deals in Dutch where all the customer interviews are in Dutch and the deck has to be in Dutch where you speak no Dutch is a heck of a learning experience. <laughs> um,
0: it's, it's just a different learning curve. Andrew. Yeah, just a different learning
1: curve. You get a lot of Googling words and you're trying to decipher Excel. But we moved over there and it was it was awesome and, and Nita's theme of stories no one believes. So we get all the way over there and my upstairs neighbor knocks on our door five minutes after we move in, cross-country ocean flight or flight. He points to my raincoat on the door hook in the lobby and goes, do you work for Bain? And I'm like, okay, I'm assuming you also work for Bain here in Amsterdam and they just put me below an AC or something like that when they set up my housing. He goes, no, I I used to work for Bain in in Sydney, Australia years ago and just moved to the Netherlands (laughs) with my fiance for work on a sheer whatever. And so they ended up becoming like really close friends of ours while we were there very weird Bain connections he had worked with an SAC that used to work for me in Chicago years ago who was on transfer to Australia at some point the world's smallest you know little apartment unit above a dry cleaner but we did that came back you know came back into our private equity group here because i just found that i liked it so much and it was a natural thing for me to roll back into and then along the way I ended up kind of redigging in my recruiting roots so as an AC i was heavily involved in AC recruiting and then as i came back took on some of those roles. I didn't feel as natural on the NBA front, right, to Anita, to all of your stories right now, how different that recruiting is. Not having gone through it myself, I almost felt like an imposter going back to Ross and coaching people through MBA recruiting because it just wasn't something that I had went through. But the AC side, you know, I've always loved. And so started to take on more leadership roles in our AC recruiting paradigm as we grew the business and now lead our AC recruiting for the Chicago office. And so we we now kind of our, our numbers are, let's call them two or three X higher than they were when I was first around. And it's obviously a much bigger operation, but something I've, I've kind of always been deeply passionate about because it's just such a cool part of the, it's a good reminder of the job that we have sometimes to spend your time talking to, to people in that and reminding yourself about what you, what you like about this career.
0: Yeah, and the growth and complexity of what we do in AC recruiting as a firm, and in particular, one of our largest offices in Chicago is, is not to be overlooked in terms of the what we call extra 10% challenges, but it is a huge one uh, for the business and the office. So uh, we are supremely lucky to have you in that role. Anita, not to be outdone, you also take on sort of these huge extra 10%, if you will. And I know you're a leader outside of the client work and the work you're doing in PEG. Can you talk a little bit for people listening about what you're doing there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So I I also play a, a recruiting role at Bain. I lead all of our North America recruiting efforts for BeGlad. BeGlad is our LGBTQ affinity group at Bain. And funny story of, of how I actually got involved. And I think this is reflective of just how easy it is to move into leadership positions within Bain. So before I started, so I, you know, my, I started in the fall and the summer before I started, Be Glad does an annual summit where all of the Be Glad members globally get together. And it's a, you know, it's a long weekend of of learning, experience sharing and, and networking. And I was invited to attend ahead of my start date. And I so it was out in San Francisco and I went out there and, just got to meet a, a a bunch of folks from Be Glad, which was super exciting. Particularly for someone who was who was going to be joining in the fall, I felt like I was already building a network ahead of my start date. And during that weekend, you know, there were different breakout sessions, and there was a, a breakout session for recruiting. And given my past life in the law firm, where I did a lot of people operations, you know, part of which was recruiting, I, I decided to join and see, hey, maybe I can maybe I can be helpful here. And so I joined that session. I remember talking to a couple of people and just sharing some ideas. And hey, maybe maybe this could work. Maybe that could work. And you know, the, the weekend came and went, and you know, I went back to my pre Bain summer life where I was just kind of you know living life and enjoying some time off. I remember an invite showed up on my calendar, and it, it, it was something to the effect of "Be glad leadership recruiting meeting." And this was before I'd even started Bain. I'm like. Clearly, they sent this to the wrong person, but they, you know, the, the person who sent the invite said, "No, no, no, we want you to get involved." And I said, "I didn't even start yet." They said, "We don't care," and so began the so began the journey. And so, over my years at Bain, I just increasingly took on more responsibility. Be glad recruiting is something that I've always been very passionate about, and it's actually quite an honor to kind of sit now above our team. You know, Keith, obviously, as you know, we have quite an infrastructure around our affinity group recruiting, and it, it is quite an effort, and so it keeps me busy outside of my casework.
0: I want to shift gears a little bit and get into some of the work you both are doing with our private equity group. We've talked about the industry work you've been doing, the extra 10% you've been doing, sort of leading recruiting. But you're also leaders in the ring fence in Chicago, which is one of the largest offices in the system. But what we do in Chicago is reasonably consistent and similar to the work we're doing in PEG globally. And so I, I do want to spend a little bit of time and give people a sense of what that experience can be like. For those who aren't familiar, can you touch on what PEG is from a learning perspective, what the ring fence looks like, and just demystify some of that upfront stuff so that people understand? And and I should say the private equity group, you'll hear us refer to as PEG probably for the rest of this conversation and probably a dozen times before I just gave that quick parenthetical definition.
2: Yeah, sure. Andrew, I'm happy to go first, and then you should you should fill in whatever whatever gaps I have. So the private equity group, as Keith mentioned, PEG informally at Bain, is our consulting practice for private equity clients. And what they come to us for is strategic due diligence work. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean is, as a private equity firm is considering an asset, they obviously are doing a lot of internal modeling and, and financial engineering. They have lawyers who are looking at it from a legal perspective. What Bain gets hired to do is to think about the asset from a strategic perspective, what is the definition of the market in which it plays? How attractive is that market? Is it a growing market, a shrinking market? For the asset specifically, how well is it positioned? What do customers have to say about it? What are some of the value creation levers that you could pull as the owner of this company? So those are the questions that, that we typically answer. Our PEG projects are a little bit different than our corporate projects. They are shorter sprints. So they're, you know, three to four weeks. Same type of case team that you would see at a typical corporate project at Bain. But what we do is we kind of deploy that team in a very flat way, get after answers very quickly. And typically in a three to four week sprint, we come back to our client with our perspective on how attractive is this asset and how could you create value as the owner? I don't know, Andrew, what would you add on that?
0: Well, can I just clarify, Andrew, before you start that, Anita, when you say asset, you're talking specifically about a company or an investment opportunity, right? For those who may not be familiar.
2: Yeah. Thanks for clarifying.
1: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I would add, Anita, and it's one of the things that always attracted me to it, there's always this question of like, well, aren't these things covered? You know, there's industry analysts and all these things you can go do. When you look at the types of assets most PE buyers buy, we're often looking at smaller businesses, privately held businesses, founder-owned businesses, stuff that doesn't have broad coverage, you know, analysts and six stock comps you can go look at. And so you're trying to understand valuation and growth potential in something that's kind of definitionally has this nook of the world that they operate in. And so to me, one of the biggest learnings and the, the kind of skill you build is, okay, how do I go into this kind of very opaque, large universe and figure out this company's very specific role in it and how they're likely to grow and what trends they're riding versus kind of bigger, bulkier stuff, which is just feels very different than doing huge growth strategy for a fortune 50 company whose scale you know is very different in, in nature. And so it gives you a sense of how do you, how do you take the big pieces of a toolkit and use them much more nimbly for something much more small in scale that yeah, I've always kind of personally enjoyed?
2: Andrew's exactly right. We, we sometimes internally will say we, we just have to get scrappy on an answer, right? Because the, the perfect data set doesn't exist. If it did, you know, our clients wouldn't have to hire us. Right. And so one of the other cool things about our private equity group is it tends to be the breeding ground for a lot of our innovative tools uh, and analytical approaches because again we have to approach a problem from a number of different angles and potentially take you know non-standard approaches to, to get to an answer.
0: Yeah, what was interesting to me as I started learning about the private equity group earlier in my career was I never really thought about some of the industries that existed. If that makes any sense. Like, I knew somebody would do that, but I never actually thought that was a big business. You just sort of assume certain things happen. Everybody thinks about the retailer. Not everybody thinks about the pallet manufacturer. Not everybody thinks about the company that provides security or the electronics in the store. And there's all these other little businesses, little being you know usually tens or hundreds of millions of dollars, that you just overlook. And, and that's the kind of thing, Andrew, I think you were talking about when you say like there's not six stock analysts covering the stock with a quarterly earnings report you can go look at. It's a little niche business that you need to figure out.
2: Yeah, that's that's absolutely true, Keith. And, and sometimes even with with industries that you think would be more obvious. So I'll just share an example. I do a lot of work in the convenience sector. And, and you would think that there's a lot of good data on it, but the convenience sector is really fragmented and there are a lot of small mom and pops. And so there's, there's no great data sets that exist. And so in projects, I've had team members drive out to stores and sit in the parking lot and count how many people are coming in and out of the store to get a proxy for what is one store's traffic versus another. So it's it, you get to do a lot of real kind of fun on-the-ground work when you're in the private equity group. So
0: is it safe to say, because something like that might sound a little weird to folks, <laughs> but, you know, Andrew, I think you said, like, the bankers can build the financial model, the lawyers can review the contracts, the problem is, is that in the financial model, there's, there's a growth number or a foot traffic number that drives the growth assumption for the convenience store that might be up for sale. And how do you prove or disprove that? Well, it turns out going and sitting in the parking lot at a couple stores and counting people in and out is the best proxy. Is that is that a fair characterization of some of the work? Obviously, we're not doing that on every project. Yeah. But.
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, one way I think about it, Keith, is, is often there's a story as you're selling a business, right? More and more, it's a very well-vetted story. But you're trying to sell on to the next buyer what the opportunities are. Here are the things we're going to go do to grow, and a lot of those things are in early days, right? It's hey, we've just now rolled out a private label brand, and so we see there's huge runway in it, and we'd like you to pay us for the potential for where that's going to go. And so where stuff like that happens, you don't even if there is secondary data, data coverage of an industry, it's not going to cover what the kind of of the moment thing that's driving growth actually looks like. And there's nothing that replaces going and getting voice of primary customers that just bought this yesterday, just interacted with it. Whoever signed up for the newest thing, right? I can remember we were looking at a mall clothing store years ago, who was in the middle of going through a transformation around their look and their feel. And so the bet was on, is that transformation going to work? Well, no one really knows until I go send people to malls all over the country and have them interview customers coming out of the store and say, have you noticed that the brand's changing and do you like it? And what does that mean to you and everything else? And now all of a sudden, I've got 300 data points of people's voice that we can use to say, well, does that feel like it's going well or not? And is that exciting or not? And how do we go? And so you're, you're kind of creating data out of whole, you know, out of whole cloth that doesn't really exist to try and use it to figure out how do you how do you solve some of these problems?
0: Yeah. So you've got a seller that's convinced that their story is the road to riches and they're all going to be great five years down the line. And you've got a buyer that's going, really? And right. in comes to help sort it out.
2: And Keith, you know, it's it sounds some of these things sound goofy, but let's be honest; these are these are the things that are really fun for our teams as well. There's sometimes no um, substitute for just having that that firsthand experience. I'll share a story. I was recently working on a project in the beverage space, and we did all the academic analysis, but at the end of the day, we said, "Well, we are all consumers of this." type of beverage, we, we should actually, we should know what we we're talking about. And so our, our team got together in the office, we bought every single SKU of this type of beverage and we sat there and you know, the AC on our team created a bracket and we actually went through and we started ranking them all and we came out and we said, hmm, does our answer, does that coincide with what we're kind of seeing more broadly in the data? And so it's a real hands-on learning experience.
0: Right, which is where it starts to get into you know, strategy acceleration in terms of your learning.
2: To the point you just made, right, in terms of
1: what people get out of it. It, it. As much as there's a knock on consultants for not doing, you know, real work or whatever you want to kind of label us as outside and advice and then we leave it at some point. In PEG, because of that, right, it, the person who's gonna go on to be a brand manager somewhere or run a product dev, in a company when you have something, you have to be scrappy, right? You don't get limitless budgets and data and you're trying to figure out I'm launching a new product, whatever it looks like. And and I talked to a bunch of people that have spent time with us and have gone on to do those things who the benefit of learning How do I take that problem where there's no information and go create information around it and use that to guide decision making is actually a really important skill separate from learning how to write surveys and conduct interviews and do analysis and build models, right? It is what am I actually trying to go figure out that needs to be there to, to figure out my answer.
0: It's so funny. It's so hugely overlooked. Like some of the best experiences I've had, Anita, by the way, are absolutely going out and doing store visits, talking to customers, talking to employees. But it is. So often overlooked because I think when you're doing case prep on campus, you just start making up stuff. Well, I'm going to assume (laughs) that, you know, 90% of customers think this is going to work and 10% don't. And I'm like, well, in the real world, you wouldn't assume that. You would find a creative way of going and figuring out what the customer thinks. And sometimes it's consumers, like the convenience store example or, or the retail store example, but a lot of times, it's another business that you can't just interview a thousand of them. And how do you create information that that's useful? There is is really huge. So, if people are now interested in the private equity group, I bet you half of the people listening to this Anita are just as terrified of going into it as you were when you first do, joined. Do you the have firm. a data
2: point for that, Keith? <laughs> or are you making that one
0: up? <laughs> I will figure it out after this call with a quick survey. <laughs> What do we do to take care of people when they when they come into PEG? Because it is something that a lot of people are doing at Bain. It is an important part of the journey, and it builds an important part of the skill set. But it is a new and unique skill set in some ways. And I imagine that some people would be nervous about jumping into the deep end of the pool, so to speak, if that's the metaphor we want to use. How do we bring people into PEG uh, at Bain?
2: Yeah, great great question, Keith. And, I, and I'll clarify one thing that you said, that the toolkit that we use in PEG, for the most part is 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 the strategic toolkit that you that you learn at Bain and deploy on other cases. So if you think about kind of the broader approaches and the frameworks, it's what you'll learn in new consultant training. It's what you'll see on your corporate cases. I think you know the difference in private equity is, is is twofold in my mind. One is we do it on a more accelerated time frame, right? Which requires you to be a bit more 80 20 in your approach. And we have really sophisticated clients. Our our private equity investors are some of our smartest clients and so I always find it fun to work with them because I I find they actually push my thinking as much as I push their thinking. So I'd say that those are the the two main differences. Now, when someone joins the private equity ring fence, as I mentioned, it's a rotation. So we don't just throw you in for one project and hope you sink or swim. What we do is we bring you in for a rotation. We typically phase people in. So that way you have the opportunity to shadow someone for a little bit and and get your feet wet. But we also have structured training and and onboarding materials. So you you kind of get all the tools at your fingertips. Now, that said, there's no better learning than by doing. And so your first deal, yes, is it going to be a little tricky or a little bit different than we used to? Probably by your second, you feel better. And by your third, you're, you're kind of on a roll. And so it can be intimidating. But as somebody who actually went through it as a consultant, I came back to Peg actually as a manager. So had to kind of do the reentry a second time. I was pretty amazed by how quickly I, I got into the flow.
0: Andrew, is that infrastructure something that we've been investing a lot in over the years?
1: Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I can think about this from being an AC2 on the lone peg team in 2008 to where we're at now. And as a firm, given we we kind of started this as a thing in consulting right in the early 90s, we've done fourteen, fifteen thousand 15,000 of these diligences at some point. And the benefit of that scale allows us to have real infrastructure in place. And so at the local office level, we have a full-time manager on a rotation who spends their time during that six months helping us onboard people, helping drive trainings at the local level, helping mentor people, helping be an ear for anybody who needs a sounding board. As you think about things, that infrastructure exists at, at our offices across the system. There is central folks who help us coordinate everything around expertise and around dividing and conquering how we pull in the right IP on things. Yeah, I actually lead on the side our advanced analytics ring fence with some folks that's carved out specifically to service PEG clients so that they have the ability to build reps and repeatable tools around the types of analyses we do for private equity clients that our teams can tap into where you need to leverage data scientists and advanced analytics techniques at speed. And so we've been able to invest in a lot of those things, you know, advanced data sets that we can make use of across that entire footprint that allows people to be really set up for success day one. I mean, you think about how many surveys we've written as a practice across 14,000 diligences. We know how to write surveys very quickly. There is really good BDPs and guidances and systems around that that help you be super successful out of the gate. You're not inventing this you know, from scratch on day one.
0: And so my understanding is that that is unique to us. The infrastructure you're talking about not only is necessary, but it's unique to Bain. In the sense that we have the scale to be able to invest in that, what are some of the things that people should be thinking about learning if they join Peg? Because one of the questions we get a ton of in recruiting, and I know you're both very involved with recruits, as we talked about, is when should I do Peg? You know, should I do it my first case? Should I do it for my summer? Should I do it? You know, should I wait till I'm a senior manager? What's the answer to that question?
1: Yes.
2: Yeah, I was going to say the answer to the question is you should do Peg. Period. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's such a it's such an important training ground. And, and Keith, to your question around what, what is it that you actually learn? I bifurcate that into there's a set of technical skills that you learn. And then there's a set of answer delivery work ownership skills that you learn. So on the on the technical side, it's everything from learning how to build a market model to doing consumer research, writing surveys, you know, as Andrew alluded to, working with our advanced analytics group to do big data analysis or, or web scraping to collect data that's otherwise hard to collect. So there's a whole bunch of technical skills that you learn. And then the second set of, of skills, you know, some may argue are probably even the more important skills are around how do you drive to an answer quickly? How do you leverage a hypothesis-driven approach? How do you work plan under tight timelines? How do you communicate in a way that is pithy and insightful and compelling for the client? And, and I think it's the combination of the, the technical skills and, and then kind of the broader you know, general manager toolkit that, that really is where the magic happens.
0: Yeah, and Andrew, as you think about the other part of PEG that we haven't touched on yet, which is within PEG, we're working across every industry that Bain works across. Can you talk a little bit about the industry mix within PEG? Because I think people tend to think, well, I'm not really interested in the financial services sector and private equity, so PEG's not for me. And and they couldn't be further from the truth in terms of how it actually works.
1: Yeah, I mean, so again, you go back to 14 or 15,000 of these. At this point, we're doing these at scale in every sector of the economy where there is PE interest. And so there are partners, managers, folks who specialize all in healthcare under that umbrella and and co-create our healthcare POV within PEG. I lead everything in transportation and logistics we look at as a firm from a PE buyer perspective. And so everything within there with that allows folks even more junior to start picking areas they want to specialize. And so we have some managers who want to see deal to deal very, very different things. And that's great. And we're well set up for that. And we have others who are looking to do this as part of a view of where they're trying to go. I want to specialize in healthcare over time, spending a year looking at healthcare diligences and kind of understanding different sectors of healthcare is actually really accretive to that journey. And I think the other piece that I come back to on one of the more important learnings, Keith, and and it ties into the bouncing to different industries, everything else, is the one thing Peg is uniquely, uniquely good at because of the time pressure and everything else is forcing you to figure out very quickly what matters and what doesn't and where you're going to spend time. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that's a really important skill, no matter what you're doing. And if you could master, how do I appropriately figure out what's a useful thing to worry about and what's not a useful thing to worry about? And I can do that across industries. I can do it across topics. I can do it on a thing I've never seen before and a thing I know very well that serves you really well. And so figuring out how to master that along the technical and the tactical and the work stream ownership and everything else, but just kind of constantly being asked to figure out what's a good use of my time in this interview or with this data set and what's a bad use because there's only so many hours in the day, to me is always one of those reps that really just kind of helps you push and whether that translates into you doing peg forever like you and I have chosen to do or whether it's just to stop on the journey, you know, both of those are really good answers.
0: Cool. I want to wrap with a maybe a little bit of an open-ended question, but you've both been involved in the people side of PEG for for the firm. What are some of the things you're hearing from people as they rotate out of PEG in terms of what they learned? Or some people are you know years outside of PEG now looking back and, and thinking about some of the things you just talked about, Andrew. But what are some of the things that you're hearing from our people that have spent a, you know, a meaningful amount of time in the ring fence?
2: Yeah, I'm curious to hear what Andrew says, but I'd say the number one thing I hear is people walk out and say, I'm a hundred times better at this job than I used to be because of exactly what Andrew described around, you know, getting down the learning curve quickly, fine tuning your ability to zero in on, on what matters to be hypothesis driven. So I think people, people come out with both increased competence and increased confidence on those, on those dimensions. And so it, it really, for most people, is viewed as a, as a career accelerator within Bain. Right. Yeah. I would, would you agree, Andrew? Yeah, I
1: would echo the confidence side of that a lot, right? The way I always talk about it for people is in broad consulting, right? You could do a year-long project, right? And so you could be in consulting for two or three years and see three or four projects potentially, which is great. And there's a very different set of learnings around what does it take to move a large organization a very long ways over the span of a year. And that's also skills you want to build. But it also, what it doesn't do is give you a clear sense of end to end, start to finish. I saw a project from blank sheet of paper to the final deliverable, and I start building confidence in taking something from the very beginning to the very end. Peg takes that and shrinks that, and you do nine of those things in seven months, and you come out going, okay, I I now have full confidence that if you throw me a blank problem statement... (laughs) In a book and something I've never looked at before, in an industry I've never looked at, like I have confidence I can get from the beginning to the end of that in a very short period of time, and that does huge things for you for everything you go look at after that because now random client asks and pivot in your work and all that stops becoming scary because you've been you've become used to and just confident in yourself's ability to say okay, give me a problem, I'll I'll figure something out. Yeah, here's what that looks like.
0: And that's very well said. As someone who's done a few corporate diligences over my career, but have also worked on multiple clients for 18 or 24 months, where it went from strategy for a retailer that was struggling to being able to shop in a store that we designed, named, and merchandised 18 months later, there is a place for both. And the only place where you can do what I've done and what you all are doing in PEG is Bain, which has been really neat because people have that, that opportunity to participate in both and then say... I think this is where I'd wanna take my career. And there's a path for both of those here. Andrew and Anita, I wanna thank you for the conversation today. Like I said, I've known you both for a really long time and I don't think we've ever stopped and just chatted for a little while. So thanks for coming on the podcast. I know we are super busy and I look forward to uh, getting to see you all in person in the office soon and having more conversations with people about the private equity practice at Bain. So thanks a lot.
2: Thanks for having us, Keith. Thanks, Keith.
0: Thanks everyone for tuning in to Beyond the Bio. If you'd like to share a review or give us input on what you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd really like to hear from you. Please email our inbox at beyondthebio at bain.com. We'll see you soon with some new episodes and thanks for listening.